All right, guys, thanks for um, tuning in tonight to this class, this School of Christ uh, lesson. We are still looking at the uh, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, the uh, Beatitudes, or as some, as some describe it. And Today, we're going to keep on going. In our last uh, session, we ended the session looking at blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they should be filled. To me, I hope, if you haven't listened to that one, I, I encourage you to do so. That is one of the points, I think, need, that needs to be made today so much. There is an idea, thought, that... And I know, you know, some people do it, many, maybe most, but many do it uh, unknowingly. We throw around phrases like that. But the problem with throwing out phrases like that, such as hungering and thirsting, we Christianize the, the thought. And so it becomes a cliche. It becomes a, uh, just phrases that we use to make ourselves feel more Christ-like or feel like we're, you know, our relationship with God is, is uh, deeper in, in some way. But the problem with those type of things that become just phrases we use or cliches that we adopt <coughs> is that for most words have meaning and words imply an action phrases imply a condition or an activity that is required um, so to say that we hunger and thirst as christians today you know it's given birth to so many different uh, effort oriented religious activities we have conferences and all of these things that are about hungering for the Lord. And so what do we do? We get on our face and we pray and we seek God uh, with all of our might. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, doing all of that. But when it is under the heading of I'm hungering and thirsting, that is merely an adoption of a phraseology that we think has a, one meaning when actually the way Jesus uses it is totally different and has a totally different implication. Um, in fact, the when when you read the verse, let's understand first of all. And again, this is covered in the in the last session, but I feel like we could maybe recap it a little. Let's understand first when we read these verses, the setting. We have called this setting the, the, the New Covenant Mount Sinai uh, because he's, he's standing there and he's about to further on in Matthew 5 go into the fact that the law has been, uh, the law has been fulfilled in his coming. So he is coming to fulfill the law and the prophets, not to destroy them. So this is the setting in, in which 
we find ourselves here in Matthew 5. So he is not trying to lay on them more outward law-based uh, instructions or commandments. He is coming as the fulfilling of the law. And basically, he is coming to invite them to be partakers of the kingdom that he is about to usher in, to partake of the new covenant in which the very thing that was presented in types and figures and uh, deeds of the law will now be provided to the soul because as he says in uh, the new covenant, I will write my law in your hearts. That is his presence. That's him dwelling in us, in our hearts, fulfilling in us the law's requirements. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, the righteousness of the law fulfilled in us. This is a reality that they, that he was now coming to present himself as and to invite them to partake of. So that's the setting we have here. He is coming to present to them that all of their hopes, all of the promises made, all of the things that they were anticipating in the coming of the Messiah is everything he is now offering to them if they would realize a condition therein and come to partake of a greater uh, reality in him. And we've dealt with that as far as the poor in spirit and um, the meek and all of those things. But this is another, this is another aspect of that. Because once you, when you look at the fact that he is offering to them the blessed state of the messianic kingdom, then you realize hungering and thirsting is, is, is interjected in there for a reason because what they were hungering and thirsting and the reason they were hungering and thirsting was the fact that they didn't have it. When someone is starving, that's because they do not have food. When these people, when it's said of them, they hunger and thirst after righteousness, it's because the righteousness that God desires, the righteousness that is bound up in the person of Christ under that administration of things, under that moment in time is a testimonial time frame, that righteousness was missing. It was absent and it was impossible for them to attain it unless he comes and offers himself to their soul as that righteousness. They were actually truly hungering and thirsting for something that was not, it wasn't just in short supply. It was not supplied at all. And it could not be supplied as long as that first, um, covenant or that first administration still stood. It could promise it. It could prophesy it. It could typify it in all kinds of different ways, but it could not provide it. That's why Paul says, if the law could have given life, then righteousness would have indeed been by the law. These people were hungering and thirsting. And when I say these people, I mean, those under the law, those who he is coming to here and presenting the, the sermon on the Mount. These people were waiting for the righteousness of God to come in their Messiah. They were waiting for something that they could not attain by works, that they could not achieve by efforts, 
that is that as divinely inspired as the religion of the Jews was, it was never intended to provide to them the fullness that only the life of Christ could. Therefore, he is now presenting to them himself as the as the bestowal of all of those realities and inviting them to partake of them in himself. So when he talks about those who hunger and thirst, he is he should actually, uh, uh, you know, be uh, looking at, you know, actually we should, or let's say we should be looking at this in that context. He is, he knows, it's just like he says to the Pharisees. He says to the Pharisees, you search the scripture for in them, you believe you have eternal life but they are they that testify of me. He can say that to them because he understood their lifestyle. He understood that that was indicative of their existence, searching the scripture and longing for the very things the scriptures testifies, applying the scriptures to their life and trying to live it and, and, and be holy and be righteous because God demands it. Now, what he's doing is to those, basically those same type of people or the same people under that same administration, he's saying to them, I know that you're hungering and thirsting after the thing that was absent and that is righteousness. Because basically the only thing they truly had was a self-righteousness. They had a righteousness, as Paul says in Philippians 3, a righteousness of the law, but he, he, having received the righteousness, which is by faith, which is the righteousness here promised or offered, it's not a righteousness at all. It's not righteousness. Righteousness is embodied in life himself. And that's, again, what Jesus offers. So he's not coming in and giving to the Christian another expectation of living with a ever existing unquenched hunger and thirst so that we can still be in that state of impoverishment and, 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 you know, insatiation. He's, he's bidding them to come and die and come and partake. In fact, the word shall be filled when he, when he talks is actually the word, it, 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 the definition for the word actually means to gorge, to gorge on. I mean, he's laying it out and saying, come and die. And this thing is full, complete, and it has no limitations on how much of it you can partake of. Come and eat. And see, if you look at something that Jesus says in John 6, 35, you, this will become clear that this is not the obligatory condition of the, of the Christian. John 6, 35 says, he said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. Notice the words. He that cometh to me, that's that's basically receive me, new birth, shall never hunger. Never hunger. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. We should see 
that this is not about a continuation for the believer. It's about a state that the believer finds the very thing for which the soul was, was created in the coming to him or the believing upon him. From, uh, uh, let's see, this is from Calvin's commentaries. Whosoever, whosoever shall be betake himself to Christ to have life from him will want nothing, but will have in abundance all that contributes to sustain life. Now, again, I'm sure Calvin had natural life involved, but again, the thing at, the thing in question here, or the thing that is the central object of this hungering and thirsting, is righteousness. Righteousness. The only time that righteousness could ever be the possession of the soul of man was the moment that Christ, by his spirit, could abide within it. Before that moment in time, the soul was always in a state of famishment, hunger, thirst. He's talking to people that actually, by the law and the efforts of the law and the works of the law, were attempting to satiate that hunger by means and methods that could never do it. Therefore, he's offering to them now a means by which they can truly have their soul and their hunger satisfied, their thirsting satisfied, and that is believe on me as the bread from heaven. So <clears throat> we get into that a little more in depth in the uh, last uh, YouTube uh, or the last CMI School of Christ class that we did here. Today, I want to go on and move into Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. And we'll go ahead and read that verse. We're going to go verse by verse. And this we may cover one verse. We may cover two verses, depending on uh, what happens. But Matthew chapter 5, verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, read this face value. And it's caused, it, it, it's a difficult verse for many people because as we've talked about before, it seems to show a supposed cause and effect uh, in the way it's worded. It seems to say, if you do this, then you get this. And if, if you do something, then you receive something based upon that doing. And again, this is the false concept of transactional salvation that is so often presented as true Christianity and is, is, is absolutely diametrically opposed to true Christianity. Um, so it is, you know, this idea of having a transactional salvation, or you could say transactional maintenance of our salvation, which is what more more or less, this this seems to um, uh, pose to people when they read it. But this is um, a 
commentary from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. I want to read this to you because to me, this, uh, this helps us understand the basis of this so we can move on. I don't want to belabor the point just to show you the, the true emphasis that's being made here and, and kind of get us to over, to, to look over or overlook our, um, you know, just the, tendency that we normally have, that inclination that we normally have to pose something as transactional. If I do this, then God does this. And that's not what it's talking about. Okay. So from Jameson Fawcett Brown, he says, beautiful is the connection between this and the preceding beatitudes. The one has a natural tendency to beget the other. Uh, for the words they shall, they seem dif, uh, directly fetched from Psalms 18.25, with the merciful thou will show thyself merciful. Not that, now here, here's how he corrects it. Not that our mercifulness comes first, because that's our idea. If we are merciful, then we get mercy. And, and of course the source, the source of our mercy comes from God, but we be, if we're merciful to people, God will be merciful to us. And Jameson Fawcett Brown here says it is not actually stating that our mercifulness comes first. On the contrary, he goes on and says, our Lord himself expressly teaches us that God's method is to awaken in us a compassion toward our fellow men by his own exercise of it in so stupendous of a way and measure toward ourselves. He goes on and speaks, and we may cover this, in the parable of the unmerciful debtor, the servant to whom his Lord forgave 10,000 talents was naturally expected to exercise the same measure of the same compassion required for forgiving his fellow servant's debt of 100 pence. It is only when, instead of this, he relentlessly imprisoned him until he should pay it up that his Lord's indignation was roused, and he who is designated for a vessel of mercy is now treated as a, as a vessel of wrath. What he's saying is the fact that his debt was forgiven by his Lord gave a natural expectation that the result of that would be I'm going to be merciful to my servant because, because in the picture here in this, in this parable, the debt was, you know, so much smaller than the debt that he was forgiven. And it's to, is to make a point. The point is, he was forgiven of a debt that was great because he thought that his Lord would, would be wrathful and that he would be in prison or, or killed, but his Lord forgave him of a debt that he could not pay. The natural expectation of that was to extend because of what had been affected toward him by his Lord to extend that compassion to others. 
Consequently, when he failed to do that, he was imprisoned. He was put, or he was, uh, I'm sorry, the Lord showed wrath upon him because he heard that it was not extended beyond him. This is important for us to understand because we so often put all of the, all of the weight <clears throat> as far as God looking at it, God requiring of us something, we put it on us and we say, unless, and again, as we read, if you read this in that context, it's easy to, to see it. If you read it out of context and you read just the, just the way the King James pronounces it, it's easy to say, well, if I don't show mercy to people, if I don't, you know, if I'm not compassionate to people, then God will not show mercy and be compassionate on me. What we have to understand is that the fact that we are born again is the compassion and mercy of God extended to us. This is what he's, he's talking about. His mercy is extended first. His mercy, his compassion has been extended first. That's the effect. That's the first effect. The second effect is when we understand the, the, the debt that we were forgiven, the gravity of our situation before we were extended such compassion, then when we are faced with others in, in, in a situation like that, we can understand that we are, were in past tense and continue to be in a state where we necessitate the mercy of God at all points in times, because the mercy of God is a continuous, not just to get us from death unto life. <clears throat> it is that power of his abiding presence within the soul, a soul that does not actually deserve it, a soul that has not warranted it by any effort. As he was saying, Ephesians, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is the gift of God. The soul that has had such compassion extended toward it will look at another and say, that soul is in the same position as I am, that I was and that I continue to be. Therefore, I'm not going to show anything but mercy or compassion upon it. It keeps us from... <clears throat> Comparing ourselves among ourselves, cutting someone off because they do not reach a certain standard that you have set. When you realize that you have never met a standard that God has set, you will stop trying to set a standard for others to meet because we, we stand on the same ground of absolute necessity of the mercy of God to be extended for our souls to have anything that is that is that is real that is of spirit that is true and I found that the more that we realize now connecting to our previously covered points that we come to the kingdom of God when we partake of the grace of God as those who are internally deficient, internally impoverished, hungry, thirsty, utterly starved of any spiritual substance of all, we understand that all men are in the same condition and that all necessitate the same degree of God's mercy and grace. Therefore, we are also able to extend that mercy that has been given to us to them. 
to be open to offer to those that many may reject, cast away, but we, knowing our condition, understanding the debt that has been forgiven by God for us, we will show mercy to them. Now, that's not about me showing my mercy to them. It's about me declaring God's mercy to them because I was in the same need of God. Man, they don't need my mercy. They need God's mercy. So if I understand my need of mercy, and to me, I think this was, he's talking to Pharisees, he's talking to Jews, he's talking to people who are religiously astute, zealous, <clears throat> and may have had an inclination of self-righteousness about them. And he's saying to them, if you understand the mercy that you're in need of, then if, if you will come to me and receive that mercy, I think what he's saying to them is that you will extend that mercy to those you do not necessarily believe warrant that mercy. Go back to Romans 1 and 2 and 3 and, and read that and go to the Romans classes we taught on it. That's all Paul's talking about. That you would declare to them the mercy of God so that they could receive the same mercy that you were in need of because it's for all. We will point them to God's mercy that is not found anywhere other than Christ himself. It's not that I'm going to be kind to them and generous and try to be, you know, the, the best person to them I can be, that I'm going to give them a place and this and that. And that may, that may happen, but that's not the standard of the showing of mercy. The showing of mercy that is being addressed here is to, de is to declare to them and, and, and present to them that God's mercy is extended to them as well as to you. Because you understand how great the debt was that had been forgiven. They may not yet, but you do. Um, this is from the Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary as well. <clears throat> and I think it gives us a good glimpse here at the meaning. Uh, according to the view given in scripture, the Christian stands in a middle point between a mercy received and a mercy that is yet needed. Now that, uh, I think that's important to understand. There's never a mercy that is not needed. It's a mercy that not only provides, but sustains. Sometimes the first is urged upon him as an argument for showing mercy, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. Um, and thus, while he is ever looking back on the mercy received as the source and motive of the mercy which he shows, he also looks forward to the mercy which he yet needs. He, that's the thing. He always sees himself as a, as a soul in need of the mercy of God to be ever extended. The mercy of God that got him into Christ, the mercy of God that keeps him there because it is a reality of God and not of us. That is the mercy of God, the compassion and kindness of God extended to a soul. A soul that has had that type of mercy extended to it and understands that mercy will extend 
that mercy to others and present to them that that mercy is not withheld. And here's, here's, here's another thing we need to clarify. We are not offering or giving mercy because we are more spiritual than anyone else. But because we understand how desperately we all stand in need of God's overwhelming grace. See, when you see the word mercy used in scripture, That word is used in the scripture for a deep feeling of compassion. We'll see if it stayed recording. I'm not sure. So, all right. <clears throat> Another place, the Old Testament is also rich uh, in words that express the concept of the mercy of God, since mercy was a part of God's nature and would never fail, even when, here's the, here's the point of it, even when Israel proved unworthy of it. That's the beauty of the mercy of God. That's what he's getting to. It's not about warranting and it's not about you being worthy of it. That's the whole point of mercy. And when we understand that God has has bestowed the mercy upon a vessel that was not worthy of it, then you are more open to receive others. You know, I remember uh, hearing a lady one time and she, you know, she, she had a conventional idea of, um, you know, the, the, uh, salvation and all that stuff that you know that's so she had her ideas but she always said the older I get and the more I know the Lord the more people I realize my will be in heaven or the more likely I am to, to allow other people that I would not formally allow to get to heaven and and by that she meant basically she understands that she's no better than anyone else
the mercy first partaken of, the mercy that he's offering to these people is a covenantal mercy. It's a, it's a mercy that is covenantal in nature. The birth of the Messiah himself and this, this moment where the Messiah is sitting in front of them, offering to them all of the blessings of the kingdom and the messianic age is God's revelation of a covenantal mercy that he is giving to his unworthy people. It's him showing his compassion to take upon himself and exercising himself within those weak and unworthy vessels so that his covenant would be realized and fulfilled. That's why Hebrews talks about that God made covenant with himself and God swore by himself. It's, he, he doesn't look for anyone else to keep covenant with him. He keeps covenant. That's what covenant's all about. The stronger party keeps the covenant because the weaker party with whom that covenant is made cannot keep it. The fulfilling of the covenantal promises, the inheritance that was promised being fulfilled, this is a work of the mercy of God bestowed to his people and for us who have come to him. In fact, you can read this in Luke chapter one. It was starting verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. Then we go forward into uh, verse 67 and it says, and his father Zechariah, speaking of John the Baptist before he was born, he's still in his, in his mother's womb here. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, and listen to these words, blessed be the God or blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. And he spoke by the mouth as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show, listen to this verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. There's the covenantal mercy. And to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without any fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you child will be called the prophet of the most high. Now speaking of John, previously he was prophesying of Jesus coming, but now he speaks to his son who will be the forerunner. Uh, you will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness 
and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. You see, this whole thing, what he's offering to them, right? It frustrates me how we read scripture out of the context of the time in which it was written and the moments that we in which we read the settings around surrounding all of them. it frustrates me when we do that. Because we miss the gravity and the weight of these words, we miss the beauty of it because we try to bring it in the present day and at apply it to our present day and time and put a 2020-2021 interpretation on. The mercy of God that we as believers, we who believed on him, have received is the very promised mercy extended to his people by covenant and promise. The coming of Christ is the showing of God's mercy fulfilled that he promised to all of the fathers of Israel, to Abraham and to all the fathers of Israel. It is him showing his mercy realized. And I love this, that he says that he would be a, a prophet of the Most High, John would, and give the knowledge of salvation to the people because of the tender mercy of God. He could declare this one, the light now shining, the sunrise visiting us from on high to bring us from darkness and from the shadow of death to life and light. This is the mercy of God that has been given to us who did not deserve it and could not have found such a condition regardless of our efforts toward it. It was not something we could achieve. Efforts could not attain this is the mercy. This is the gift of a compassionate God who has shown his kindness toward us in his son. But this compassion, this mercy, this kindness is God fulfilling his promises to his people, to the fathers. It's him fulfilling every promise he made concerning his mercifulness and kindness toward him in all things. And you read throughout the Old Testament that he's saying that Christ comes to fulfill. You read throughout the Old Testament cries for God's mercy. Psalms chapter six, verse two, have mercy upon me, O Lord, I am weak. O Lord, heal me for my bones are vexed. Psalms, Psalms 9, 13 and 14, have mercy upon me, O Lord, consider my trouble, which I suffer of them that hate me. Thou that lifteth me up from the gates of death, that I might show forth all thy praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I rejoice in thy salvation. Now, let's turn to uh, Luke chapter 18. Chapter 18, we're going to read verses 35 through 42. And we see God's mercy being extended again. And I love the setting here because it, it tells us so much about not only his covenantal, but what we've come to also because it's the same. Verse 35, and it came to pass that as he, as he was come nigh unto Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the way begging. And hearing the multitude pass by, he asked what it meant. And they told him, Jesus, the son of Nazareth, passeth by. And he cried, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. 
And they which went before him rebuked him that he should hold his peace, but he cried so much the more. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood and commanded him to be brought unto him. And when he was come near, he asked, saying, What will you have me do unto thee? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Receive thy sight, for thy faith has saved thee. Now, there's so much there because it's not just has made thee whole or has healed thee. The word there is the word for salvation. Your faith in me has saved you. Why? Because this giving of this man's sight was not about miracles that we are to imitate throughout the rest of the ages. It was him declaring a covenantal promise fulfilled to his people who would come and receive. That if they would come to him, confess their blindness and cry for the mercy of God that he himself could provide, he would save them, which is equivalent to receiving their sight. So many people who read these verses, they emphasize on the fact that these people told him to shut up and don't continue to cry out so loud. So I say, oh, don't let anybody tell you to stop praising or stop crying out to God. And there's even songs written about it in this, you know, it's a good preaching material, I suspect, I guess, but it's not the point. This man hears that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by and he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Why? First of all, look who he actually cries out to for this mercy. Thou son of David, who is that? Messiah. You who is the promised salvation of God, the full extending and bestowal of God's compassion upon his people, have mercy on me. He, he received this mercy that Matthew 5 is talking about. It's not merely a man receiving his eyesight. It's a man calling out to the Messiah in recognition of his, that he is the passion, compassion and the mercy of God provided. And he receives. Psalm 51 verse 1, have mercy upon me, O God according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. See, this is, this is what this is about. Your faith has saved you. Psalms 51 is about a man who, who confesses his internal depravity by birth. So what is this mercy? How do you blot out these transgressions? Because this is what this mercy is all about. You heard what Zechariah said in this prophecy, talking about John, you would tell, give them knowledge of salvation to the get knowledge of salvation to this people in the forgiveness of their sins. So when you have this Psalm 51, say, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your tender mercy, blot out my transgressions. How does that happen? And what is that about? because it's only a condition that is 
that can be changed by the power of God alone because he cries out, create in me a new heart or give me a new heart, create in me a new spirit, a right spirit. The only right spirit, the only new spirit or right heart is Christ himself. Because this is the same place where he talks about a condition that this mercy was needed for because he was conceived in iniquity, born in iniquity, conceived in sin. And this will be more significant, I think, in even the next verse we talk about. So in Paul's, <clears throat> if you go to Paul's lamenting over his people, Israel in the flesh in Romans 10, I think. He, he speaks of a mercy received, a mercy extended to all for whom it was intended, cause it vessels of mercy. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of him that showeth mercy. There is the power of this. And so many of us still, unfortunately, foolishly, so many of the recipients of God's mercy yet attempt to qualify or measure the degree of man's spirituality in view of him that willeth and him that runneth. Christianity is built on that. That seems to be the lifeblood of religion. It's to measure the degree of man's spirituality with him that willeth and him that runneth. Or as you can go to Colossians, touch not, taste not, handle not. That seems to be where we put the weight. And it's not. It has no weight. It has no weight. The weight is not of him that willeth or runneth but of him that showeth mercy, the mercy of God being shown to the soul that had no power in and of itself to achieve righteousness, to perform holiness, but the mercy of God that has gifted to the soul all that the soul, all that man in his own power was incapable of, of, of doing and achieving. The power of all of this is the mercy of God. Now, one or two more places, and then we'll we'll call it call it a lesson. Luke chapter seven. We're going to start in verse thirty-six. Luke chapter seven, verse thirty-six. One of the Pharisees desired him <clears throat> that he would eat with him, and went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. Behold, a woman in the city, who was a sinner. Now this is specifically pointing out the fact that this woman was a sinner and it's going to continually do this throughout this parable for a reason. So this woman who was a sinner, when she knew Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. Now look where we are. We're in a Pharisee's house, religious. And because of that religious lifestyle, I'm sure feel they're holy, also feel that they deserve Jesus. Jesus 
should be in their house, right? So here's this woman who's a sinner. Now she brings this alabaster box full of ointment and stood at the feet at his, I'm sorry, stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with her tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw He spake within himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, now speaking of Jesus, if he were a prophet would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him. She is a sinner. <laughs> Isn't this amazing? Isn't this amazing? Doesn't this look like us? And Jesus answered him saying, Simon, here's the Pharisee, Simon. I have somewhat to say to thee. That's never a good sign. Jesus is about to say, hey, I've got something to say to you because he, he knew what he, he thought. And he said, Master, say on. 41, there was a certain creditor. Now he gives him a, a parable. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. One owed him 500 pence and the other 50. And listen to these words, because this is important to this whole story. Verse 42. And when they had nothing to pay, he forgave them both. Now remember, there one of the people owed him 500 pence and the other owed him 50 pence. So one owed him 10 times what the other owed. And when they had nothing to pay, because neither of them, neither of them had anything to pay this debt, he forgave them both. So Jesus continues on now and says, tell me therefore, which of them will love him most? Verse 43 Simon answered and said, I suppose he to whom he forgave the most. And he said unto him, you have rightly judged. Verse 44, he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, see this woman, I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she Wash my feet with her tears, wipe them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss. This woman, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou did not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say to thee. See, to me, it, it's also significant that when he talks to Simon, he's always kind of talking about the head or the upper part. When he talks about the woman, she's always at his feet. Verse 47, wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Now, the issue here, because we read this parable and many people have read this parable, preached on this parable, wrote songs about this parable, and have missed the point of the parable. Because we, 
you know, we take this whole thought about washing his feet with our tears and wipe them. And I've heard preachers make this an effort on our part of how do we do that? How do we wash his feet? How do we wash his feet with our tears? So people say, well, we have to cry. That's not the point. This is not about making another effort out of this or some zealous work out of this. This is not about that. The issue here is the mercy that was necessitated and received demands love and mercy extended. She knew the great mercy that had appeared to her. Therefore, she was fully engaged in worship and in gratitude. In fact, James Fawcett Brown rightly says her love was not the cause of her forgiveness, but it was the proof of her forgiveness. The point is, <coughs> we say this many times, to whom much is forgiven, they love much. The same who is forgiven little, loves little. What does that mean to us? It doesn't mean that we go about or we sit and calculate how much we have been forgiven so that we can rightly express the appropriate measure of forgiveness or love or gratitude. That's not it. It's about understanding that we're all this woman. We're all this woman. Same thing with the woman caught in the act of adultery. Look how he, look how he deals with them. He puts them on the same level as her and none can stand before him without sin. He does the same thing here. That's the point here. We all stand as these men who had neither 500 pence or even 50 pence to pay the debt but the Lord forgave them both. That's where we stand. That's our place. That's the whole point here. That we all are this woman who was forgiven much. Therefore, in understanding that, we would love our God and, and, and live in a state of gratitude for that great compassion bestowed. And because we understand we were in and had given unto us that level and degree of mercy, we understand we are not greater than the other or better than another who stand in the exact same need of that mercy. And we are able by being recipients of the mercy of God extended to extend that mercy to others and declare that mercy to their soul so that they would come and receive the mercy of God and in that receive all fullness in him. To further, Adam Clark says this, in the common translation, speaking again of this Luke uh, chapter seven, where we just were, in the common translation, her forgiveness is represented to be the consequence of her loving much. The way it's worded, it sounds that way, which is wrongly translated and wrongly causing the tree to produce the root instead of the root producing the tree. 
we must see that her love was the effect of her being pardoned and not the cause of it. See, that's the idea that we have. That's why we are so in love or maybe not in love, but we are so programmed with the idea of a transactional salvation. The mercy here, the source of it has to first be seen as divine and only one who actually does realize the magnitude of the debt that has been forgiven, the gravity of the corruption in the vessel to whom God has shown mercy. Again, to repeat it, they had nothing to pay. In understanding the, the, the tremendous depth of Adam's hold on the soul and how God has canceled such by his own provision, these are those who will be merciful to others. You do not look to condemn or add additional weights or requirements to those that you understand cannot meet those requirements because you could not meet those requirements. They stand in need of God's mercy because you equally stood and continue to stand in the need of this bestowed mercy of God. And, and in, in understanding this, we can see that this is God's ultimate intention. This was his understanding, his intention throughout the whole thing, because Paul hits it and says it this way in Romans 11, and then we're done. Romans 11, chapter 11, verse 32, for God has concluded them all in unbelief, where? Under the law in Adam, whether Jew or Gentile, all of them. God did it. He concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. Mercy upon all. We are all in need of this mercy. Some have received it and some have not. And those who have received that mercy and understand the, the true gravity of the situation that God dealt with in, in this bestowal of mercy, the true forgiveness of a immense debt that could not be paid by us in any way. We are willing and therefore do offer to others in the same condition in the need of that mercy we are able to extend that mercy to them again not our personal mercy to them no this is about to be able to extend to them the good news of the compassion of god that if they would come into christ they could receive this reality and receive in him all things all fullness so We'll stop there and call it a night. I uh, appreciate you guys listening. I hope this recording wasn't uh, interrupted. There was a little glitch there in the system for a second. So hopefully not. If so, you'll, you'll know what happened. So thanks for watching. Amen.